2: It's the Wonky Show. There's a delay to the response to the Auger Review. We've got a bunch of access and participation reports to chew on. There's a report on casualisation from UCU. And
1: the grammar school debate is back. It's all coming up. Particularly, My auntie Beryl actually went to a grammar school in the 50s. <laughs> she seemed to think it was all right. That's about my level of um, uh, poor level of engagement with the whole idea, really. Um, uh, whether universities could be comprehensive. I think there is an interesting question, actually, which might be playing on the minds of some about... Uh, Universities that come from the the, the polytechnic background.
2: Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host Jim Dickinson, recording from, actually it says Wonky HQ in London here, but I'm not actually in Wonky HQ in London. I'm in a a hotel somewhere in London about to contribute to Advance HQ Student Governance Programme. But uh, nevertheless, the January chill has set in, and to warm us up with the fires of policy analysis, we have two amazing guests... Uh, in church Endstone, we have mary cannot cook oh, mary, mary your, your highlight, highlight of the week, of the week please,
0: please. <laughs> i think it'll be later today i'm going off to um visit a school where my charity the access project is um helping disadvantaged kids get into university so i'm looking forward to that later on today excellent, excellent. And, and in Andy. northampton we have
2: nick petford nick your highlight of the week please
1: uh well i've uh, just got back to the UK from china and i was watching that bbc dracula program i don't know if you <laughs> saw it and uh I have to say, the ending is rubbish.
2: <laughs> Excellent. So, yes, we start this week in Parliament. Much to everyone's surprise, Chris Skidmore announced on Monday that the post-18 review of fees and funding will conclude alongside the next spending review. Uh, and in the meantime, one of Labour's intake has been causing a fuss. Nick, talk to us about this one.
1: So this is the uh, long-running saga. That is the uh, Augur review. Uh, you're right, Chris Skidmore, the minister, uh, appears to have ruled out anything before the uh, budget statement on the 11th of March. So we'll just wait and see what uh, what that brings. But in the meantime, there's been, as I understand, some uh, amateur dramatics uh, in the uh, House of Commons, where the MP for Coventry South, uh, Zara Sultana, publicly demonstrated her uh, misunderstanding of the difference between uh, cost and price by waiving her student loan debt statement at the Minister Gavin Williams. Demanding that he look her in the eye and tell her it is fair,
2: Mary. This is interesting, isn't it? Because um, the, you know this, the, this this debate about you know w- whether debt is real and the nature of the student funding system doesn't seem people to want to, want to want go, to go away. away.
0: It doesn't, and it's. Um, I find it very irritating because it's it's just sort of clickbait for for the tabloids to scream about huge levels of debt. And actually, I thought there was quite a good explainer on the on the BBC website. You know, reminding people that if this isn't debt like any other debt um basically uh you know she's she it, it's a it's an easy point to score um but it, it's just it's just wrong i'm i'm still uh, a huge fan of a system which means that higher education is free at the point of entry and that people who get the benefit by earning a, a salary over the threshold Uh, Get to pay it back. I think it's a
2: fantastic system. Nick, obviously, Zara was making a political point, but I mean, I guess you know the reality is it it, it does say that she owes X amount on a student loan statement, and that student loan statement has got you know words like interest and debt accrued and 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 that sort of thing on it. So, you know, even if it's a kind of political stunt, she is making a point that will resonate,
1: isn't she? I think Mary's right. It's a stunt, um, and it's just to my mind running out of steam. Um, Really. The best source for information on this, if you are a concerned student or a worried parent, because parents are a key part in this as well, obviously, is the Martin Lewis site. And you know, he's right. Ignore newspaper headlines about students leaving uni with 50000 of debt. It's a meaningless figure. I mean, what counts is how much you'll repay. And so for some, that'll be more than others. For some students, it'll be entirely free. So it's far more complex uh, than just waving a piece of paper and making a political point in the House of Commons.
2: And, and, and Mary, I guess, you know, one of the things about this is that whenever that is debated, it's, it means that the debate about how much money students get in maintenance gets obscured North, to some to some, to some, some you know to you some, know, some, extent. some
0: extent. Yeah I mean I think um many would agree that there's a there's a, a kind of underlying unfairness that those from the poorest backgrounds have to borrow the most because they get the higher maintenance loan. Um and and I think nobody would be that surprised if if the government does something about that. Uh, when they do respond to to auger or whatever they decide to do um i th- I think there's also you know there is a bit of an own goal isn't there that um that the language of tuition fees, which are actually university fees, not tuition fees, and the language of of debt which we know isn't really a debt is you know, is language that has has come out of government policy and to a certain extent out of the student loans company. Um, I'm a I'm a um a non-exec director on the student loans company, and and we are discussing this. You know, can can we actually make a, a change to a, a different set of language that more properly reflects what's going on here, what the financial contract is? Um, I think there are some who think that it's too late to change the language, but I'm I personally I'm in favour of um starting to do that. Um, and, and getting a more balanced debate in this area.
2: Just switching back to Augur, obviously in the context of Brexit, we hear a lot about you know businesses needing certainty. But it seems to me that for universities, vice chancellors and so on, the, the uncertainty about the funding model going forward when we're about to experience you know a kind of increase in in theory the demand for higher education must be troubling I
1: think it's uh, universities are exposed differently to Brexit um, you know we're as a University of Northampton we're not hugely research active so we we don't have uh, great income losses around Horizon 2020 and the rest of it so we're not quite as affected um, I think there's an opportunities around Brexit actually uh, in the areas of skills and training that universities can play a major part in uh, with FE so I think that part of the Augur Review to me really resonates won't with all universities, I don't think, but for us, where we come from as an organisation, um, I think the ability to work more closely with with FE partners uh, on a really important skills agenda uh, and a workforce development agenda.
2: And, and Mary, uh, you know, you, you your are experiencing these things. things. What's, What's your, your prediction, prediction for, for when uh, we, uh, we, we might see a response, response to, to order. Order?
0: Um Well, w- when, when the government's got something sensible to say, but it, it feels <laughs> to me as if, um, uh, you know, the gap between the Augur report being published. I can't even remember when it was, but it must be coming up for a year ago now, is it? And the government responding to it, I think, you know, tells us something about, uh, you, you know, what the response is going to be. I don't expect it to um, to take on many of the uh, recommendations, you know, not least because the whole political landscape has changed, you know, so all that stuff about low value courses and stuff, I think that uh, that needs to fade out a little bit because the government needs to keep, you know, areas in the North and the Midlands Um, uh, where they're borrowed votes from you know previous labour areas you know a lot of those will be highly contingent on universities that probably in some conservative minds fall into the quote-unquote low value area so uh, you know my expectation is that there will be quite a kind of nuanced change now let's see who's been blogging for us this week
3: Hi, my name is Dorothea Bartrooks, I'm a Senior Policy and Research Officer at the Council of Deans of Health. We represent the nursing, midwifery and adult health faculties in the UK universities. I've been writing about our academic staffing census that we undertook last year and we have just published our final report from that project. The census looked at recruitment and retention issues at faculty level as well as individual staff data. We found that a lot of our university faculties have issues recruiting the right academic staff to teach the nurses of tomorrow um, and also to undertake the vital research that is needed to um, advance evidence-based practice in the NHS and beyond. There are many reasons for the recruitment difficulties. First of all, it's much less attractive these days for uh, healthcare professionals to go into academia because salaries tend to be lower in academia than in the NHS and career progression seems to be more limited than in the NHS. This is a particular issue for more advanced positions and um, for specialist positions as well as small subject areas where courses tend to be quite small and the pool that people can recruit from um, is very small as well. Why does this matter? Well, we can expect that 50% of the nursing room for free academics in our faculties will retire in the next 15 years. And that in a time when demand is growing and we may have an impact of Brexit of more um, EU nurses leaving and therefore we having to train more, um, more nurses and other healthcare care professionals here in the UK. We believe that there is a need to invest in more teaching qualifications of staff as well as developing um, doctorates and more early career researchers in our disciplines, especially those that are underrepresented in the research landscape such as nursing but also paramedic science and others. We also think that it's really important that practice and academia work closer together to enable people to um, engage with research and teaching whilst they are in practice because it's so valuable to have clinical academics um, teaching and undertaking research as well as having a positive impact on the NHS.
2: Good. It's been a bumper week for reports about widening participation. Uh, The Commissioner for Fair Access in Scotland, the Sutton Trust and the Education Policy Institute have all put their access ore in. Uh, the CFA focuses on access to postgraduate courses. The Sutton Trust takes aim at the London elite. And EPI's report, the first in a series commissioned by the Centre for Transforming Access and Student Outcomes, examines the breadth of previous research on the topic. Mary, uh, give us a flavour.
0: Yeah, so it's a, a veritable triptych of items on widening participation and fair access, as as you say. So the first one from um, the, the Commissioner in Scotland, Sir Peter Scott, uh, we learn that progression to postgraduate study is lower for students from deprived areas than students from more affluent backgrounds. No big surprise there, I suspect. And um, it reflects, obviously, the lower progression rates to undergraduate study in the first place, but also uh, the fact that disadvantaged students are less likely to go to Russell Group or more academically selective Universities. Um, I thought there was some quite interesting stuff about subject choices as well because um, more affluent students are more likely to be studying um, subjects like law or physical sciences, which typically have greater progression to postgraduate study, and disadvantaged students are more likely to pursuing things like nursing, which um, typically doesn't have much progression to postgraduate. So, I, to be honest, I didn't find any big surprises in here, and, and I think we just need to remind ourselves that the biggest factor in all of this is uh, gaps in access for undergraduate study because, of course, a first degree is usually a a prerequisite uh, for postgraduate study. Then we move on to the Sutton Trust uh, study, which tells us that two-thirds of the socially mobile who come from working-class backgrounds have succeeded in high-status professions by staying close to where they grew up. Um, And the headline here is that London is apparently off-limits to ambitious people from poorer backgrounds because of the cost of living and and rental rates and so on. Um, They're saying that this makes London the epicentre of the elites. Uh, Probably, again, quite a timely report in the context of the government trying to rebalance the economy in areas outside London in the North and Midlands. Um, So uh, that was the second one. And then the Tezo report... And basically says that the higher education sector is spending loads of money on outreach and widening participation with scant evidence that it makes much difference. Um, they say they can't tell whether current activities like summer schools and so on are really effective or whether actually they're just kind of cementing and supporting uh, individuals who are more likely to go to university anyway. And uh, to be honest, that this reports music to my ears. I think too many initiatives are directed to sixth formers, um, when actually the biggest barrier to participation in uh, HE is failing to get a good enough set of GCSEs to support A Level or, or Level 3 study in the first place. I, I really think if we want to widen participation, we need to help more students earlier in the education cycle. Um, Sometimes I think that access and participation efforts are just universities competing amongst each other to recruit the relatively small number of deprived students who do well enough to go to top universities. But uh, so there we are. Um, uh, Just one additional point. I've I've, I've noticed that, um, you know, it, it used to be fashionable, didn't it, say 10 years ago or so for the sector to blame schools for not getting enough students over the academic hurdles needed to go on to university Um, and I think there was a reasonable backlash against that narrative but now it feels to me as if HE's taking all the heat and (laughs) schools are being let off let off the hook.
1: I guess Mary's right this report is clearly having a dig at the London elites. Um, and London isn't Britain. It's a very different place to the rest of the UK, as we've discovered in the Brexit vote and also the recent election. I think, um, well, I can speak actually with some confidence on this because as a widening participation student myself, I think that the trend, the phrase is lived experience um, of this whole social mobility thing. And what, what I find interesting about the debate more generally is that the um, uh, politicians and the public uh, press preoccupied with this idea of absolute upward mobility um, but if you do want a proper meritocracy, some people have to move downwards. This idea of relative mobility is quite important. And that means actually some people are doing quite well, maybe don't do so well in the future. I don't have a problem with that personally. Um, but the accent, the focus always appears to be on um, sort of working class kids or sections of the society, maybe race around ethnicity, um, always going upwards.
2: Yeah. And Mary, that's an interesting uh, challenge for OFS, isn't it? Because uh, that is, you know, Nick's right, that's definitely the narrative but in theory to hit its kind of long term objectives and targets, uh, that would not only involve some uh, so plenty more uh, students from low participation neighbourhoods getting to top universities, but plenty of uh, people from high participation neighbourhoods uh, not going to top universities anymore. And, and that plays out in the press quite a lot.
0: And, you know, but I mean, the focus on um, on the kind of academically selective universities is because that's where the biggest gaps are. If you look at the data, you know, the, the, there's, there's relative um, uh, equality in uh, what are known as lower tariff universities and, and almost no gaps in even in, in the middle tariff. It's the higher tariff universities where you get this really stark gap in, you know, the majority coming from affluent backgrounds. And, and we can't ignore that. Um, but, uh, you know, I can't help feeling that this is mostly about attainment. You know, I, I, I know a fair bit about the admissions system. And basically, it's about what grades you get. Um, Now, it would be nice to think that there were lots of other factors involved. But if you don't get over a basic hurdle of GCSE and A level or other level three qualifications, um, you're not going to get into um, a, a top university. And that's what, you know, that's what the biggest barrier is. And so, uh, you know, I I do find this whole, um, you know, the focus on universities trying to take more people, lowering their grades and so on. uh, I think it's become a little bit unbalanced. And actually, the the gap in my view is in, you know, really effective working between universities and schools. You know, my my little charity, The Access Project, um, uh, which is doing exactly that, working with schools, finds it quite hard to engage with universities Um, And yet those, not just the Access Project, but, you know, several other charities in that space, you know, they're the people who are actually really good at at kind of bridging that gap of working in schools and helping universities make those contacts. I'd like to see so much more of the work going into uh, Key Stage 3 and particularly Key Stage 4, because if you don't get English and maths and, let's say, four or five other good, solid GCSE grades, you don't go into sixth form. Um, You don't do level three study. And and that's what the the real barrier to progression is. There's no there's no point, um, universities just uh, you know, competing amongst themselves to get to try and recruit the students who have already got the, the grades. Um uh, you know, I'm sure that their support is is, is well meaning and and sometimes helpful, but actually if we really want to make a difference we 've got to go we 've got to go further down the food chain
2: and and, and nick we shouldn 't uh, we, we shouldn 't uh, uh, overlook the the peter scott thing the the uh, postgraduate access uh, report that has come from commissioned in Scotland this week, obviously you know much of the focus Uh, in england it has been on uh, access uh, and participation in undergraduate study but we know that access to the professions and lots of careers is dependent on you know kind of postgraduate participation do do, do we get a sense that you know postgrad access is going to be a big agenda in the future
1: well it's i I personally don't think so um where there might be an issue would be the continued it gets back to the old fee debate doesn't it you know uh, if you're going to borrow uh, money to go to university as undergraduate, then there's more cost on top. Uh, in theory, going uh, to onto postgraduate study. Now that that may, there may, you know there there may be a kind of fatigue uh, after three years of, of undergraduate study, uh, and the concerns about finances that do that does act as a barrier for students who want to postgraduate study I'd like to see some work perhaps done on that
2: yeah and this is this is this is the irony isn't it mary so in scotland we've got someone saying look we might have a postgraduate access issue in england you know a couple of re- reports that really mainline on you know we we we, we, we don't know we, we've got gaps in our knowledge we definitely have a gap in our knowledge when it comes to understanding why people aren't progressing to postgraduate
0: yeah i mean to be honest i uh, you know it was a bit of a snooze report for me this um scotland thing because it was like well we could have figured that all out ourselves. Um, and, you know, and, and I'll make the point again, you know, if we correct the gaps in uh, for undergraduate study, that will that will fix most of the gaps in, in postgraduate study. You know, um, tinkering at the edges is not going to make much difference to postgraduate progression. But I would agree with Nick that actually not just the um, prospect of adding more debt, but the fact that there isn't um, ready finance for postgraduate study, I think it's £10,000, isn't it? And, and that isn't going to help, you know, that, that, that is not going to fund both the tuition fees and the living costs for somebody to do a one year uh, full time postgraduate course
2: yeah and i guess to, 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 to some extent the the comparatively generous offer in wales on uh, postgraduate study which appears to be having quite a rapid and dramatic impact on participation is, is definitely one to watch good now her name is leo and she dances on the sand some new longitudinal outcomes data is out and dk has been playing with it to see if it
4: tells us anything hello this is dk talking about the latest leo release We've been asking for ages for salary data that takes into account the region that graduates live and work in on their pay. It's one of those obvious things that's got a clear impact on salary, especially given the likelihood that many graduates will be staying in the region they studied to work. So now that we've got that, and even a version of provider-level Leo based on a weighted median that takes region into account, unfortunately, as undeniably clever as that weighted median is, it's entirely useless. In releasing this data, DfE has removed all of the other aspects, sex, subject of study, prior attainment, that we already know have an impact on graduate salary. They've done this because including too many splits would make the data unpublishable. It is rounded to the nearest five graduates, HESA style, and low-end cells are suppressed to avoid identifying individuals. So even though we get an interesting look at salaries in each region by provider, and an eye over the proportion of each institution's graduates in each region and i plotted all this on the site for you, it's still not a fair or accurate prediction of graduate outcomes. Releasing this split was an interesting choice in policy terms. We now know that DfE are aware of the huge impact that graduate region has on salary and the problems inherent in presenting this. It's arguable that this release represents a confession that Leo is not a usable tool to differentiate institutions or courses. OK, now back
2: at the start of the week, UCU released a report on the state of employment terms in the HE sector, drawing on interviews with HR staff and academics in the northeast of England. The report spoke to the number of academic staff on fixed term or otherwise more precarious contracts. Nick, your take.
1: Well, this is again uh, an important issue for UCU, uh, and I should declare a, an interest here. I'm on the board at UCIA and UCU and UCU are talking about this issue um, right now, and I think it is it is deserving of, of of conversation. One thing I will point out, though, is that the the idea that being that possibly has been put forward that casualisation is, is, is running rampant across UK universities is totally incorrect. I mean, the data, I've got the most recent HESA statistical bulletin here in front of me, the higher education the staff statistics for 18-19, and only 2%, 2% of academic staff and 1% of non-academic staff were employed on what you might call zero-hours contract. That excludes atypical staff. The vast majority of workers in higher education are on um, secure contracts uh, and where they're not, there's often a really good reason for that. So for instance, those areas uh, that we at this university employ people on fixed term contracts would be in the arts, in law perhaps, and that's because they're practitioners, they've got jobs, they like to give something back in the university, so we record them as fractional staff um, they've got no interest whatsoever in working full-time for the university, but they provide a really valuable input into the student experience.
2: Mary, this uh, this debate about precarity is obviously a, a, a central plank of the uh, in, in, in industrial dispute. It, what, what's, what's your, your sense, sense of the kind of scale and intensity? intensity?
0: Yeah, so, so I hear what Nick says, and, and he probably knows a whole lot more about it than I do, but I, I, I do feel that there's no smoke without a fire um, in this case. And um, you know, when, when when you hear about um, early career researchers and so on, I, I think the sector could do more. But I think this also plays into um, uh, a, a sector not really knowing what's going to happen next. So um, you know, as long as universities don't know what the, the fee level is going to be, what the um, you know research funding, what's going to happen post Brexit, um, I, I think they're rightly nervous about um, fixing new costs into. Uh, into the business model, <clears throat> when they, you know when they don't know what their, what the future funding is going to look like. So, so I do think that the um, you know there's some urgency for the sector to to have some kind of long term view about how funding for the for students is going to work, and and then I think it's it's more credible to ask the sector to um you know to to have a, a look at tackling some of these things which. Which, as I said, are, you know, maybe not as widespread as as um, the union makes out, but is definitely an issue.
2: Nick, is that right? Are we are we sort of caught in a catch twenty two, awaiting some certainty on funding, and then it, lots of this will become more straightforward?
1: Uh, well, I don't, don't think so. Personally, I mean, if if you look at how uh, then there is an interesting argument around the sources of funding um, that that influences the prevalence of fixed term or open ended contracts, and uh, uh, you look at two thirds of researchers something like. Yeah, 67% uh, are on fixed-term contracts in, in where they're funded through um, short-term projects on research councils. Now, I've been on those myself um, 20, 30 years ago. Um, uh, I've had uh, numerous uh, postdocs on various sorts of research contracts on projects that last for two and three years. And that, I think that's been understood as how the sector works. Don't forget, if you're... Um, and one of the recommendations from uh, the UC report is that uh, they asked the office for students to collect more data on this issue. Uh, there, there is data abounding, actually. They don't need more data. Uh, that's m- my feeling. Um, but this idea that the research councils only allocate grants of academic teams comprised of staff on open-ended contracts is nonsense. Uh, it, it, that, I can't see how that would work. The funding councils only only pay 80% of the fully economic cost anyway. So, I would imagine academics uh, would, and universities wouldn't be able to just wear the cost of that. Um, where I've had uh, quite successful postdoc students in my in my career, they've been funded by industry uh, and industry postdocs, maybe one or two-year projects. You get more than 100% FEC and all of those individuals go off and work in industry afterwards anyway.
4: Now
2: it's time for Yes, but how does it extrapolate? Here with this week's Extrapolation Question is Wonky's Associate Editor,
4: David Kerner. Welcome to Yes, but does it extrapolate? podcast segment that's been ringing your bells since the start of the year. This week we've gone back to the start with looks again at the famous Times prediction that every graduate in the UK would be getting a first by 2030. They based that on four data points and now, thanks to HESA, we have an extra one. If we take into account all five data points in our extrapolation, by what year will all graduates in the UK get a first?
0: Okay, so the, there was a levelling off of um, grade inflation, if you want to call it that, which means that the year would have got later. So I would say it would be 2040.
1: 2050. Because yeah. uh, it's 10 years more than what Mary said. And the answer is
4: that by 2084, all graduates in England will be getting a first-class degree. This demonstrates... If you add even a tiny extra bit of data to a terrible extrapolation, it will change radically. It's a very good illustration of why you shouldn't do extrapolations with this tiny amount of data. Uh, We got the new data from last week's HESA student release, and where the data doesn't exist, I've extrapolated it.
2: And finally, an old friend has come to visit a year after ian mansfield 's Happy report, which made the case that grammar schools helped to bolster social mobility. Happy has granted right of reply to a group of academics and one rogue vice chancellor mary, your take on this
0: God well, yes, as you say, a collection of essays from happy challenging ian mansfield 's report, which was as you say January last year. Um, and he was saying that progression to highly selective universities by students from lower income backgrounds was much better in areas that had selective or, or grammar schools than those that didn't. Um, to be honest, I feel like this is just descending into a kind of slanging match between experts about methodology and ideology. Those in favor <laughs> of grammar schools, Ian Mansfield in the blue corner versus those against them, everyone else in the red corner. Um, <clears throat> With the exception of of Tim Blackman's voice, which um, has been consistently against selection in both schools and universities. But the rest of it, I think, is a bit unedifying. Um, my take on it all is that the evidence is always going to be skewed by the fact that there are so few grammar schools left, meaning that we've got population clusters and effects that I think make it impossible to draw conclusions at a national level from the data, and then if you if you go back to the data from the era when grammar schools were everywhere, that's skewed by differences in in the funding rates. Um, just thinking about it, I'd love to know how many vice chancellors, senior academics, he leaders of, of a certain age were the product of grammar of the grammar school era. I I I'd guess quite a few. Most um, people I know who went to to grammar schools um, keep it a bit secret, but privately acknowledge that grammar school saved their lives. Um, After all, grammar school's just an extreme form of streaming or setting, which happens in pretty much every school in in the country. Um, So, yeah, I don't know whether this uh, helps us much at all. Um, In the end, uh, it's the difference between politics and policy. Uh, you know, I think there is some quite compelling policy evidence that grammar schools is not necessarily the right thing to do. But the politics is that grammar schools are really popular with the general public, um, even if they are routinely trashed by educationists, so um, yeah the debate isn't over and watch this space
1: Uh, I mean this is an argument that I find I don't really understand much about it to be honest and um, I'm not even that interested so uh, grammar schools well whatever if they they work for some people that's fine I don't know anyone particularly my auntie Beryl actually went to a grammar school in the 50s (laughs) She seemed to think it was all right. That's about my level of um, uh, poor level of engagement with the whole idea, really, um, uh, whether universities could be comprehensive. I think there is an interesting question, actually, which might be playing on the minds of some about uh, universities that come from the, the the polytechnic background. Whether there should be more focus on that wider scale vocational route. I don't know if that would make them comprehensive or not. But uh, I wouldn't be entirely surprised if there isn't some uh, notion that the binary divide, so-called, could come back uh, so that you have universities focusing more on a skills agenda and others more on a research agenda. I'm not saying if that's a good or bad thing, but who knows, it could be out there.
2: Yeah, and, and, and I guess this is the, the, the question, isn't it, Mary? So, I mean, I, I suspect that, you know, despite the thumping majority, this is a government that will want to avoid these kind of big uh, the, the, these kind of big totemic rows, but lots and lots of things might drift in certain directions regardless.
0: I think so. I mean, I, you know, I also have got a bit of sympathy for for Nick Hillman's view that, you know, what, why do we accept um, without question, you know, um, stark selectivity in the university sector and then say, well, actually selection in in schools is, is wrong. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, you know, as, as I said earlier, I, th- I think there will be a kind of a, a softening of the kind of idea that, um, you know, the Russell Group, good, everything else bad. Um, Nick's right that there's there needs to be um, uh, more attention paid to the skills agenda. I think universities must be able to figure out a way to work better with with F.E. colleges and, you know, not just top up degrees or, you know, weak articulation actually to do it. Really uh, really properly, I think that's a good thing, and uh, you know I have a sense also that the the curriculum the the sort of standard curriculum of the university sector is is a bit out of date, and yet uh, universities you know they're just not able to spin up new degree courses uh, you know it takes a year it takes a couple of years to get a new degree course through all the program approvals and and all the rest of it and so I do, I do feel like the the sector's a little bit stuck. Um, but of course, meanwhile, demand for this arguably out-of-date university curriculum you know, continues to march
1: forward, <laughs> so, so who knows what the answer is. I actually think Mary's uh, very right to point out what is a, a significant weakness, potential weakness in the university sector. That that will be exploited if we're not careful, so well, I think we need to be on the front foot in a, as a sector. And think about the new jobs and areas around you know, software development, data analytics, systems engineering, cyber, and all the rest of it. um uh, getting back to my point about Brexit being an opportunity which won't go down well with many of your listeners I'm sure um, the opportunity I'm talking about is is to do with um, the lack of migration into the UK right? we're going to need skills that are presently provided for by people from outside Britain from the European mainland uh, and the rail industry is a great case study if you look at the skill shortages in the rail industry which are predicted because of people going back to continental Europe after Brexit we've got to fill those holes in uh, in a key industry using people from the UK, our own people. And universities have got a really important role to play in that, along with FE colleges. So there's an opportunity. But Mary's right. We need to be developing skills-based courses. uh, And it could be training for people in work. It doesn't need to be the relentless focus on 18-year-olds and getting more into university. This is where we should focus, I think. Uh, Not all universities will be up for it. We certainly would as our university. And it almost gets back to this notion of the old polytechnics, doesn't it? You know, providing a different kind of flavour of higher education that's more related to the immediate needs of industry.
2: Good, that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically search for the wonky show via itunes or your favorite android podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the wonky show drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to mary nick everyone back at the ranch team wonky for making it happen and until next week stay wonky